0: Yeah, to be fair, Cornell is barely an Ivy, so. (laughs) Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my Friend and co-host Mickey, Enzlecht. and when I say with me, I mean really with me, because we are in the same room today, are we not, Mickey? We are. This is uh, a strange,
1: strange feeling. I- I've, uh, I've really missed being in this room. It's been, I think, eight months that uh, we have not recorded in the same room, and uh, I think this is the ideal place for us to be recording. So, uh, I'm, it's, it's, you know, it's a, a nice, comfortable feeling. I missed being here.
0: Yeah, well, it's lovely to have you. Um, it it's really been eight months that's crazy i think so right the last time we recorded was in march i guess uh together shit yeah or possibly
1: before then because we might have had like a recorded a couple in the can in february right around sbsb time
0: who knows it's been a long time though wow well um i'm glad that you're here and that we've just chosen to flout ontario's (laughs) health guidance are we i think small gatherings are still allowed right Yes, I think small gatherings are allowed, and we are
1: technically, I would say, at least six feet apart here. Uh, yeah, but we're also talking loudly. Yes, especially me. So it's just, you're really, ad- you might get my COVID. It's, it's, you're the one with school-aged <laughs> children and a loud voice. It's true. <laughs> yeah. But, no, I think we are not breaking any rules. Uh, and uh, even though the numbers have started climbing again with uh, the second, we're right in the middle of the second spike, second wave, I should say. Um, it does feel a little bit different this time. It feels like, uh, it feels like things are more under
0: control and my kids are in school now. Um, maybe that's just an illusion. Well, you know, I feel like at a certain point you have to start living your life again. What what was it that, that Trump, uh, personal friend of the show said, you don't let it dominate you. That's right. Don't let it dominate your life.
1: I mean, I, 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 you know, every night before I go to bed, I, I, I try to read a a quote of Trump's and live by that maxim for the next day. So that's one I abide by.
0: Yeah, same here. Um, do we want to talk
1: about what we're drinking today?
0: Yes, uh, we do. And
1: uh, because we're, of course, in person, uh, we can drink the same drinks again, which, again, another benefit. And I'm so pleased in my neighborhood, uh, a new uh, brew pub opened up. Uh, it's an outpost of, um, I think, my second favorite uh, brewery in Canada. This is Collective Arts, um, proudly from Hamilton, Ontario. And they, uh, they, they, you can widely find their beers really all over the city, but they just opened a brew pub uh, a couple blocks from my house and they're got an amazing selection of beers. They're going to be brewing their own Toronto special beers soon. Right now, it's just a canned beer. And uh, we're trying something that I've never tried before. It is a grapefruit and elderflower
0: India Pale Ale with azaka and and Eldorado hops. Yeah, this is a very exciting and exotic choice and obviously not what I would have chosen for myself, which would have been some like shitty Pilsner or, or not beer at all. So now that Mickey's here again, he's, he's in a position, as he mentioned, to enforce the rules more strictly. Well, cheers. It's good to, uh, to be in the same room and drink the same beer. Cheers, sir. We're doing a socially distanced toast here for everybody who can't see it. <laughs> see the entire audience? Mm, I think that's really good. Yeah that, that that is really tasty.
1: Now I noticed they called it an India Pale Ale with you know in the name of the hops. But they didn't necessarily call it an IPA, so I am uh, slightly confused by the difference.
0: Um, well, it's been established that I don't know anything about beer, so I, I cannot answer that question. I'm sure we will get some listener email pointing out that we're a bunch of dumbasses.
1: Right, yeah. I, I, please someone email us and tell us what the difference is between IPA and, spelt out, India Pale because I thought they were the same thing.
0: Yes, I have no idea. Uh, Okay, Mickey, so can you explain to me what we're doing today? Yes, I I like how you're kind of, you're really kind of flying in
1: blind. You kind of know that the basic contours that we're talking about today, but it's just going to be kind of us riffing a little bit. I know very little. Yes. Uh, So we are going to talk about academia, uh, kind of a value, and maybe specifically to be a bit more specific, um, faculty life, being a faculty member, being a professor, um, and the pros and cons of that, and the difficulties of getting that position. And um, the reason uh, we both thought it would be an interesting topic to discuss on the podcast was that um, I have noticed and also been part of uh, you know, some a couple of pylons I noticed in the past few years. Um, where so uh, you know, one time a couple of years ago now, I think I was on sabbatical. Uh, I was responding to a good friend of mine, Elliot Berkman, who was describing academia as a pyramid scheme. Which I think it is. I mean, you know, with a professor on top and graduate students kind of on the, on the bottom of the hierarchy, and, and the professor enriches him or herself with publication that the most of the graduate students are publishing. And it's, it's a pyramid scheme in other ways too, but I think, I do think the analogy is apt. And I kind of responded to his tweet saying, I completely agree with Elliot. You know, there's so many hor- horrible, horrendous things about academia. But at the same time, it's also amazing. Uh, as, as a faculty member, um, these are the reasons I like it. This is the reasons why I like my job and I'm happy and and feel privileged and lucky that I have it. And holy shit, did I get, you know, uh, uh, you know beat down. I got a lot of, at first, a lot of likes and retweets, people agreeing with me. But then I kind of got into... Uh, uh, some other people who I don't know, who I don't follow, don't follow me, they caught wind of it, and they started just really criticizing me, piling on, saying that I'm privileged, and you know, how dare you, there are, there are poor, starving graduate students who can't get jobs, and how dare you flout, um, or you know, be be uh, uh, not sensitive to to their plight. And uh, I knew I was kind of getting into a hornet's nest at the time, but I'm like, fuck it, like, I, I just never see anybody saying that academia is good. You, you mostly see in the negatives. But I, that just stung me, for sure, and it stayed with me. And I think I've been more timid on Twitter ever since then. Um, but whatever. It's me, and I've, I think I uh, I often say things uh, in a, a very brusque manner, and, and I, I often rub people the wrong way. I'm just used to it. That's fine. Um, but then about a month or two ago, I saw the same thing happen to someone else this time. um. And this time it was someone who is very sensitive. I'm not going to mention any names. Someone who is very sensitive, uh, someone who's kind of uh, down with woke lingo and understands that they are in a privileged position, and was essentially pushing back against the the dominance of the negative takes that people had about academia, where mostly you see people just begging on it, saying it's toxic, it leads to poor mental health, it's unfair, no one can get jobs, it's the worst kind of job you can imagine, and why are we doing this? And that's kind of the accepted thing you can say. And she kind of pushed back saying, again, that might be true, but that wasn't my experience. And I loved my time in grad school. It was probably the best time of my life. And I love being an academic. I love my job. And I just want to get another side out there. So the graduates don't just see, you know, one side and one side only. And the same thing happened to her. She had uh, a, a bunch of positive uh, comments, but then um, a bunch of negative comments uh people you know calling out her privilege, people saying that you know uh, perhaps she 's not uh, aware of, of how dysfunctional it can be, especially for people of color and I think she was so sh- shaken by by the critique that she ended up uh, deleting her original post and uh, and then that 's about it so that was kind of the the rough idea that you know. We, we certainly—it seems like we can't actually talk about academia being a positive thing, a good thing, a job that we enjoy—at least on Twitter. And again, Twitter is not the real world, so we figured, why not? Uh, let's discuss the the pros and cons of academia on the podcast. And it'll be very hard for people to scream at us, at least while we're talking. So that would be—that's kind—that's of, a plus.
0: Yeah, they can feel free to yell at us later. So uh, you know, I I don't want to derail. I I know you have like a, a plan, and I'm happy to defer this if if this is sort of in your materials. But it seems like there's at the, at the outset just kind of some confusion about what we're talking about, right? So if you're like, it's great to be a professor with tenure, I think most people would say like, well, yeah. Um, and maybe some of the pushback against you was that it's just sort of ungracious to flout it when there's people who are like, oh, man, am I going to be employed next year? And you're like, yep. Tenure sure is amazing. Love being in Bali, you know, <laughs> right. So, so that's not like academia sucks. It's like, well, you got a great deal and you, you know, you shouldn't uh, proclaim that too loudly. Um, and then on the other hand, you might say, you know, even holding that constant. Like, let's say you're in grad school, that it's sort of taboo to say, when I was in grad school, I had a really great time. And I thought it was like a really fulfilling, exciting time in my life. And you're supposed to be like, grad school is miserable. They don't pay you enough. Um, And I'm Super stressed, and anything other than that is again sort of ungracious. And I, I, I do feel like those are different things, right? In, in that, yeah, if you're like the lottery winner who has the job with tenure, of course, it's wonderful. And the complaining is about, well, not everybody gets that deal, right? Right. So I think that's good. I think it's great to, 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 to divvy it up into these kind of two, let's say, categories.
1: And I want to, I, I think we should probably focus more on the second, because uh, I think that's where there's more of a gray area. And also, it kind of plays into, like, what are the messages that we want graduate students to hear or even undergraduates who are considering going into grad school? Um, and, you know, are they do, you know, is it only uh, permissible to talk about negatives or can we also talk about positives? But I want to maybe take a strong, uh, 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 you know, even go push it for, further and say, what is wrong with a tenured professor or even a non-tenured professor, someone who is an assistant professor uh, pre-tenure, um, saying, stating that they like their job? And these are all the reasons they like their job. Because uh, I don't think everyone, every professor with tenure would agree that they like their jobs. And there are certainly people um, in other professions, in finance, in tech, in you name it, um, who are free to say, man, I, I love working at Facebook. I get like, you know, um, a massive salary. I live in a beautiful part of the world. Um, who gives a fucking shit if I'm ruining the world? But it's, you know, I love this job. And, and I don't, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not in tech Twitter, So I don't know what kind of pushback one would receive if one were to say that. But my suspicion is that a person like that would not get the same kind of pushback that someone like me or the other person I was referring to
0: yeah i I mean, is there anything intrinsically wrong with it to me? No, um, I guess you could say it like really depends on who the audience is. and this is one thing about social media that makes things tricky is uh, you know there's there's different audiences maybe that you're the people who got mad are imagining versus what you're imagining, right? So maybe you're like, I'm talking to people like me being like hey, this is great, and we should appreciate it. And they're like, you're talking to grad students, telling them, isn't it great to be a professor with tenure, right? And and so given those different audiences, you might have different reactions to whether that's like a tone-deaf thing to say or not. I don't think anybody would say it's like morally awful. I think the worst you could say about it is it's like a little impolite. Fuck politeness.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, I, I'll totally, uh, you know, cop to like, to being tone deaf I mean I think that's a, a general characteristic of mine um, but but again uh, uh, w- why can't I say that i 'm happy with my job and and don 't we need people to say that they 're happy with their job so that you know that someone People might, you know, if, if you all they're hearing is negative, why would anybody want to go into academia? If a tenured professor can't say, I love this gig, this this gig suits me like a glove. And I, I, and also say I'm lucky to be here and I'm so grateful for all for all the things that had to go right for me to be here. Um, so I mean, if if all we're allowed to say is no, this is this kind of is shitty, and and, and then why would anyone want to be in grad school? So it's kind of like bal- rebalancing it a little bit.
0: Yeah. So I, I guess I would say it, it could be perceived as like, you know, counting your money in front of the poor. If you've heard that expression. Um, and I guess, uh, one important question here is like, is it the case that people think that being a tenured professor sucks? Like if they do, if that, if that's really a thing out there, then maybe you're right that it's important to say, Hey, here are these wonderful advantages to the job. My impression is that people don't think that, but. But maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, maybe
1: maybe this is, uh, maybe you got me on it being, uh, a straw man argument because no one's actually saying it sucked. Although, didn't we, I forget now, it's been so many episodes, but didn't we once discuss an article that suggested that the people, the professors that were the least happy with their jobs, are actually, what is it, the associates, the people who just got tenure. And I mean, there's all different kinds of reasons for that. But actually, assistants are, are happier and fools are happier.
0: Yeah, I remember that. I remember that article. Um, and I guess you can't argue with the data that, I I mean, it strikes me as is weird. And it, it's just like, you know, I feel like it's sort of implicit in all these conversations that what we have is what most people want. Like, why do people go through five, six, seven years of grad school? Why do they do multiple postdocs? It's because they want the full-time position and tenure at the end of that, right? So I just like – to me, the basic assumption is that that's what's desirable and that if you didn't think it was desirable, then like you said, why why do any of it? Why right. Not... So,
1: okay. So I mean, I, I think you got me. I, I'm willing to, to push this in a way. It's essentially you're saying – um you, one doesn't need an advocate for how you know for how good being rich is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everybody
0: knows it's great.
1: So you don't need someone proclaiming it loudly. It's great to be rich. Uh and if you do say how great it is to be rich, you're seen as an asshole.
0: Yeah, but nonetheless, you kind of have the sense that that it was sort of out there that this is actually kind of a shitty job, right? That's kind of what motivated you to to write this post. And so, where does that come from? Yeah. So, and that and that maybe comes again from
1: the, the, maybe the second audience, where uh, again, uh, you know, for, for a grad student who is struggling, um, you know, is it okay for them to say this is this is a great deal? I'm happy to be here, and I'm not miserable. And it seems like there's there's pushback on that as well. So maybe it's it's best to kind of. Uh, Talk about that second scenario because so I think that's where there's maybe more uh, more controversy.
0: That's right. That's right. So, do you have prepared material on this, or are we just going to ramble? <laughs> We're mostly going to ramble, but so I, I spent a couple hours today just kind of uh, trying to find
1: all the various things that people complain about academia. Uh, so, what are the things that you know people really dislike? Um, and this is really not in any particular order. Um, Uh, so, but just kind of as it struck me, and I think that, you know, and this might be perhaps the, uh, really the main one, and that is that there are just way too few jobs. There are way too few academic jobs for the number of PhDs that are out there. So apparently in the 1970s, there, in, in psychology at least, there were about two to three psychology PhD graduate students per assistant professor. And now, uh, or at least in 2017, the number is around eight. So, you know, a three or four fold increase in, in, in the, you know, the size of that pyramid, the base of that pyramid. Um, and of course, just the numbers dictate that, uh, you know, the more PhDs there are out there, the more competitive it will be to get a job. Uh, the harder it will be to get a job. Uh, it means only one of those eight are going to, in theory, get jobs and it might even be less than that because there is a trend and this is maybe another uh, a a point um that i that i found um there's a trend in academia to farm out more and more teaching uh gigs to adjunct faculty, so there's no guarantee that a professor line uh, is going to turn in a tenure track professor line is going to remain a professor a tenure track professor line in 10 20 years it's it's likely that some number maybe a small number um, will turn into adjunct so there're just not that many jobs and and therefore all these people who you know have this dream of being a professor it's only you know one out of one out of 8 is going to make it or two out of 8 whatever the numbers might be um, so that's you know mathematics that's just horrendous that's i mean i, I can't defend that um, that just seems
0: Terrible. Um, Well, okay, hold on. Um, It's terrible if you think that the only reason to get a PhD in, and let's just say psychology, um, because that's what we know, if you think the only reason to do that is to get uh, an academic position. But what if you don't have that presumption. Is that still a bad number in that case? No. Then I think then that then I think the calculus does change.
1: Um, I think if and I think things are changing in this regard, and I I, I suspect you agree that uh, faculty are increasingly open to training their students to to go into industry for various kinds of jobs. And I think um, uh, even just a few short years ago, that was seen as a, a second uh, you know your, that's Plan B. Plan B was to, to to go into industry, not not stay in academia. But I think that that's changed quite a bit. And more and more people are encouraged to kind of pursue their passions. If, if you want to, you receive a lot of really excellent training in, in in data science and data analysis and psychology. And if you want to go apply your trade somewhere else, great. That, that we're, we're happy to do that. So it's true. It's only a problem if you want to stay in, in, in the academy. But I suspect at least from the students we're seeing, right? So we're like a, in, a, in, a, in a, an R1 institution and most of the students at least say they want to uh, stay in academia. And as we learned from our episode with uh, Maria Konakova, it might even be ill-advised for a, gra- a potential graduate student to say they, wanna, uh, they don't want to go into academia, right? Because most faculty want to reproduce, you know, they want to have people like them. Um, but again, that, that is changing. The list I put together is for people who, 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 you know, who want to stay in the academic track. So this is not necessarily for people who are interested in going the non-academic track. Um, but you know, is the academic track worth even pursuing? Right. So the first big knock is there are not, not not many jobs. And, you know, as we learned from economics, you know, one on one in high school, supply and demand. If there's just not if there's too much supply and not enough demand, just you know, it's it's gonna lead to an incredible amount of pressure on any one individual to get jobs. So the result of this of uh, this imbalance is now uh you need a huge number of publications to get even a sniff, even to get a, a job interview. Uh, never mind actually being invited in, uh, to get a job. So, um, you know, I think the numbers vary. I know th- th- there are a number of people have done done these analyses, but I believe the the modal number uh, of publications for uh, an R one is like north of like twelve or fifteen these days.
0: That's at the time where you got hired. Yes, you get
1: hired. And that, that's not necessarily straight out of grad school. That is, you know, that could be your second job potentially. That could be certainly after a postdoc, but the number is very, very high. And when, when I started, when I got my job, uh, many years ago now, you know, I, I had like half of that. Um, and I, you know, I had multiple opportunities, uh, for, for, you know, to get a job. So it, I think just that the supply and demand has led to this crazy arms race where the number of publications you need, and it's not just enough to have numbers. You need to have pay, uh, publications in top journals right in journals that are deemed to be um a journals by you know by your discipline standards right so in our discipline that would be in social psychology that would be jpsb or psych science or never mind of course the the glamour journals like science or pnas um so it just seems uh like that, that's incredibly difficult and challenging. Um, and you need so much support to even, even have that. I'm not sure how that's even possible to get that number of publications, um, in graduate school, even, even with like a few years of postdocing under your belt. That just seems like a really, really high number. So that's, I, again, uh, you know, I also, I would agree that's a major, major con. Yeah, so these numbers are bleak. I mean, that, that's for sure. Is that your sense as well in terms of like just the, the difficulty of getting a job?
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, when I, when I finished grad school, when I got my PhD, I think I had two papers, neither of which was in like an especially prestigious journal. And then when I got my first tenure track job, this was in 2010, I had a JPSP in addition to those two. I think I might have had like a couple others that were like r or something, but, but not out. Um, so by today's standards, that's probably way low, right? Like you, you would not have a shot well, you know what? Now I'm rethinking this. I think maybe we're atypical, but if I saw a candidate that had a JPSB and I thought it was a good JPSB and that a couple other things, I think they would be considered. Don't you? I wonder, I mean, it's it's so hard because like in the,
1: you know, in the, 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 the the job search process, there are, so many applications you go through, right? So you know, easy, always over a hundred, uh, sometimes closer to two hundred. And how do you differentiate? You know, uh, you know, uh, you know from you know, you can very quickly eliminate the list about at least half because some of them are applying for jobs that are not. You know, I'm an engineer applying for a social psychology job. I'm like, uh, sorry, wrong job. Um, some are you know just in different areas, whatever. But there's still a good hundred people in there. And how do you, you know, how would you accept one, you know, a person who's got a JPSB, one JPSB that's really, really good at you love, versus someone else who's got three JPSBs, um, and that also are really good, right? So it's not as if you're like, you know, one JPSB and like the rest, you know, it's like other people have like, you know, middling papers here and there. Look, there's a lot of people who are doing really, really good work, impressive work, and it's just sometimes it's, it's it's really hard to evaluate.
0: Yeah, I don't doubt that at all. Like, to me, it it comes down to what should your criteria be when you're hiring. And I, I think um, there's a lot of room for taste there. And I would make an argument for a person who had just one JPSB versus the person who had three, if I liked the one JPSB better. Like if I thought it was a better paper, and obviously a lot of that is going to be subjective. Some is quantifiable. Like we, you know, we P-curve applicants' papers and stuff like that. So, you know, you can you can look at trustworthiness, but some of it is just, you know, do, does this research appeal to me? Do I think the topic is interesting? Do the methods seem innovative? And then I, I think there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, this person didn't publish in as much volume, but it seems like their stuff appeals more to us. Um, I just don't want to pretend that those, those like kind of volume indicators are really that meaningful to what I care about in a research, in a, in a like potential colleague.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think in an ideal world, what you're saying is right. Um, we'd read the papers. I I think in an ideal world, we would just see one or two papers from each candidate and then evaluate it based and, and, you know, and the candidate would, send their best work and we evaluate them on what they deem as their best work. I think that would be so much better, more equitable. Um, because, you know, um, again, in my search, uh, you know, I didn't even mention that like the the unfairness b- baked into a lot of the a lot of this stuff. So never mind that you need lots of publications. Um, but who is likely to get those publications? Um, and it turns out that, uh, an analysis of, you know, the, the predictors of who, who gets jobs, I, I find this astounding, astounding, but the, uh, the, the biggest predictor is not number of publications. It's not the, you know, you know, uh, quality, however that's determined or impact, whatever. It's where you got your PhD. Okay. It's where you got your PhD. So if you, if you attend an elite uh, institution to get your PhD, if you go to an Ivy, for example, you're much, much, much more likely to get a position than if you go to a non-Ivy or a non-elite institution. And both of us got our PhDs from Ivy. So, you know, and I you know, look at our, you know, probably faculty ranks. Um, and I, I suspect even just only Ivys alone would be, I, I, sus- I mean, I, I haven't counted, but I suspect to be a good number of people, uh, half or over half.
0: Yeah. To be fair, Cornell is barely an Ivy. So (laughs) Brown, uh, Brown is the same category. Nonetheless,
1: to the outside world. <laughs> yes, that's
0: right. Totally Ivy League. Um, yeah, so, so so, that's actually, that's interesting because, you know, it, it does sort of, um, it seems like these two things you're saying are sort of at odds. So on the one hand, it's hyper competitive. You have to have so many publications to get hired. And on the other it really matters who your advisor was and where you went to grad school. Like those two seem at odds. Well, so uh, so uh, it, those are separate. So the uh, the uh, who your advisor is is also a factor. I think that's
1: the number two factor. Um, but where you where you went to school. So it's not necessarily number of publications. Um, but I mean I I, I again I have to go back into the paper and actually look, look at it more closely. But that does matter as well uh, and it just so happens that the people who are coming from the ivies who are coming from you know the labs of famous professors um famous professors are famous for a reason they 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 produce a lot of research they produce a lot of research on high impact journals and uh, so the people who come out of those labs are going to have those things as well they're not you know uncorrelated with, with one another
0: yeah yeah, that's right. And so this is like the the results you're talking about are like a multiple regression where you would look for the effect of one in the presence of the others, right? But yeah, this does I mean it is troubling. Like it feels like institutional prestige ought not to matter or at least it ought not to matter very much.
1: I agree. I I do feel that is an injustice. I also feel it's an injustice um that you know the, the, you know how famous your advisor is is a big predictor. It's number two predictor. Um, I mean, if anything, you would think the opposite would be true, right? So if if you've got a, a stack of publications in good places and that have good citations, so like markers of of, of success, and you came from a from a non elite school. And you didn 't work with a famous advisor, that would seem to be a much clearer signal of we're dealing with a real real you know smart dude um, someone who is um, uh, you know is successful despite not having all the benefits that would be available to to people coming from these famous labs or famous schools but that 's not how how it works
0: yeah, so is this a reliance on you know, representativeness heuristic. People don't like to make these decisions in this algorithmic mechanical way. So they have kind of a gut feeling of like, oh, this person seems like a future superstar. And part of that is how famous is your advisor? And where did you go to grad school?
1: I would think so. I mean, letters of recommendation, which is such an antiquated thing, you know, it does carry weight. So if you if you read, um, that some candidate is you know, considered, you know, and this is not an uncommon thing to, 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 read in letters. My, my best student ever. Right. And this is a, this is a person who's produced, you know, a, a half a dozen or a dozen fantastic students. You're like, wow. Okay. This, you know, prof- famous professor X says this is their best student ever. Well, I, I, de- I definitely should, should at least take a second look. Right. So the opinions of these people at these elite institutions carries great weight. Um, and, and yeah, that, that isn't fair.
0: But again, it should be, you know, look at the candidate him or herself. So let's say that you were given free reign to reform this process, this selection process. How would you set it up? How would I set it up?
1: (laughs) A lottery. (laughs) No. I mean, so that's actually one other complaint. Like people, people, I think you've, you've said this as well, that people, people will uh, compare academia to, to winning the lottery. Um, and I think that's, that is a fair critique. I think it does miss the mark a bit because that suggests there's absolutely zero merit. There's no signal being picked up by the hiring process. And I don't believe that to be true. Um, but okay, how would I set it up? So I think we've already mentioned some of them. Uh, I would uh, ask candidates to send uh two papers, maybe three, maybe two. Just two papers. They're what they're what the papers that they're the, the most proud of. Okay, I would not ask them to to write a uh, a research statement. Um, I would not ask them to write a teaching statement. Um, I would not ask for any anything else. I, I like I mean I, I mean listen to re- research. Like, give me your two papers, and I want to read those papers. Would we do we want letters of recommendation? I'm not sure. I think that biases a lot. Um, I'd rather analyze. Just the papers themselves, and then you can evaluate the quality of the science. You can evaluate like what they're interested in. Um, And the reason I said I don't necessarily need the teaching statements and the research statements is because I think that's just a lot of fluff. I think I think the research statement is you know you're trying to frame yourself as you know being all encompassing, and you're trying to write how you you know what you do to, to 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 please the people on the committee, and it's it's not honest. It's just not honest, and we all know it. We all play this game. Um, what's honest is like, let me see your actual work. Let me see your work and let me evaluate your work. And the same thing with the teaching statement. I think um, you know we we care about teaching, and but I think all, so many people can write the most brilliant teaching statement. I could within thirty seconds find a teaching statement online, and I could like with minimal effort, you know change it. and I could submit it, and that'll be fine. Um, I just don't think it actually is a a good gauge of how effective you are as a teacher, how much you really care about teaching. Um, So that's why I wouldn't include those. So I mean, I don't know. That's just kind of me. You put me on the spot there. But what what would you do?
0: I, I think your idea is good. I would ditch the letters. I think that the question with any piece of information that you might consider is not, is it Informative, it's is there more information than there is bias or noise? And I think in the case of letters, I mainly worry about bias. And I think that that outweighs the information that you do. I mean, you do occasionally get information from one of these letters, but I think the bias is just so much larger than the information. So I think uh, ideally, you know, blinded you read a couple papers and you rate them on quality and fit with the interests of the department. And then you, you know, throw all that in a pile and you select the top 10 and then maybe you screen for other things. Like, do you really want teaching experience? Maybe you're going to say that's like a non-negotiable kind of deal breaker. Um, Maybe some other considerations that I'm not thinking of right now could come in at that stage. But I think it's important to commit to those in advance and to be clear about what those are, right? And then you just pick the people that score best. I think that's just a much simpler and more equitable way to make a decision. That's right. What about uh, the interview? Would you scrap an interview Would you or a job talk? I think it should be... Only to determine whether the person is just impossible to get along with. So, like, think of it as like a social visit. And even that, I don't think we're very good at in an interview context. Um, But you can at least catch the people who are so crazy that they can't even appear normal for, like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a day or two um and then obviously to sell the candidate on the program and to you know like tell them what a great fit they would be and so on and so forth but yeah i think interviews and job talks um i guess one argument might be you want to see whether it's them or the advisor And if they're, you know, co-authoring these papers with the advisor, maybe the advisor does all of the intellectual heavy lifting, and then you're giving them credit for it. But I'm not sure that you can really reliably determine that from a job talk. I think people imagine they can, but I see no evidence that that is actually the case. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so I'm not sure. I am I'm ambivalent about the job talk because I do think it's a core part of what we do, which is give talks. I uh, speak to audiences would be that students, uh, other faculty members, or even even the public. And you don't get that from a paper. And maybe we we, should, we could select on that. I, I don't think it's the main thing. I think the papers are the main thing and the quality of the science and the research is the main thing. But I don't think you know uh, the ability to give a, a good job talk is nothing, or a good talk, I should say, is nothing. I think the interview is where we often go astray. And I, although I do agree That using it as as some sort of social screen, or just whether you you think you get along with the the person, would be good. But I think their biases creep in as well. So again, who who are the people who are going to be, who are going to make it out in that situation? They're going to be the gregarious people, the extroverted people. and I mean that's fine for me because I, I, I'm extroverted and, 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 and that's easy but it, but it, for me, but it's not for other people. So I'm not sure uh, that's what we want to be selecting for. I think uh, ultimately we want to be selecting on the quality of science. I also am not sure uh, this notion we do in job – what we do in job talk sometimes is we, we try to test people. Right? We try to kind of trip them up a little bit. We try to ask them really hard questions to kind of have them think on their feet, and at some level, I like that. I, I want someone who can think on their feet and, and, and be quick. But again, science is not fast. Science is slow. Science is like sitting with a problem for a long time and working through it. And is your ability to be witty and, and to quickly respond to a question uh, on the fly, is that an indication that you are a really deep thinker? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. So there, I think, again, there's this representativeness process where you're like your mental prototype of the smart person is the person who can on the fly, like come up with a brilliant answer to a question. And yeah, I, I first of all, don't agree with the premise that that's what we should be selecting for. Secondly, there's big effects of just um practice. And here's where I think like... Uh, perhaps a better known advisor contributes in a way that you know you wouldn't exactly call it like a an Completely unfair bias, like people are just like, oh, famous person, we should hire their student, but maybe they can better prepare that student to give a good job talk, to give convincing answers, right? These are all like tricks that that successful people know how to do, but I think there is, as as somebody who's like pretty good at Q and A, there is a lot of trickery to it, right? To uh, answering a question in a way that makes the person feel heard, that makes you look thoughtful, that uh, engages, um, but that like sidesteps if you don't actually have a good answer, right? Like that's all like those are learnable skills. And then finally I would say here's where there is kind of an invisible bias that comes in or that has to do with like your identity. So I remember a friend being on the on the market uh, she was worried about this particular objection that somebody might make in her talk, and I was like, "Oh, that's easy. Just say this," and it was like a fairly like confrontational, shut the person down kind of answer. And she ran it by her advisor, who was a woman who said, "Absolutely, do not say that. As a woman, you can't." Right, and so like I, I think that like that's maybe something that you don't realize when you're a little more free because of your, you know, social role to, to be aggressive, to push back, to be like, yeah, that's, I, I disagree. And here's why. And coming out of a woman, maybe that doesn't sound as good. Right. Um, and, and so I think that like, we think of these things as being these neutral ways in which we can draw out like new information about somebody's uh, intellectual ability. And I, I just question whether that's really the case.
1: Yeah, no, I I I agree as well. Um and actually you bring up a good point, which is another, you know, another one of the points that I want to bring up, which is um, and this is one that kind of comes up a lot now, is how deeply biased um academia is. Um, and that uh the representation in academia we're still, you know, you know, much whiter than we ought to be. We're still more male uh, than we ought to be given the population. Um and I actually I kind of looked up some numbers. And uh, in the U.S., and I, I didn't—I uh, was too lazy to look up the numbers in Canada, or at least you know it didn't come up it, too quickly in, in in my Google search. But in the U.S., and this is done in 2019, so pretty recent, um, 24 uh, percent of U.S. academics are non-white. Um, compared to 45% of the undergrad population. So I like that. I like that baseline because that's, okay, people who are kind of going to college, going to university. So it's, you know, about half of, uh, of what it maybe ought to be like. Um, uh, and uh, 31% of faculty are women in the U.S., uh, you know, averaging over uh, all the disciplines. And that's grossly, grossly under counting the the number of women because women are are by far the majority of, of undergrads so they're they're clearly clearly underrepresented uh you know in academia and that's true i think in 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 pretty much all disciplines um now i, I wanted to uh maybe this is a bit like kind of uh, what about ism like I, I my internal defense was like well more races compared to what like are, are, okay sure where we live in a society that has been, uh, that's, that's largely white. And, uh, and as a result, you know, there's going to be these imbalances for all different kinds of reasons, including, you know, structural problems, structural racism. Um, but how do we, how do we compare to other industries? Are we, are we like deeply racist compared to, for example, tech? So I looked up some numbers and it's a bit harder to get some numbers there because, you know, these are private corporate or some of them are, I guess, uh, publicly traded corporations. but they don't necessarily report all this stuff. Um, So uh, in tech, about fifty percent of uh, the tech industry, at least as represented by the big, some of the big companies, so Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Facebook, um, about fifty percent of tech is uh, non-white. So half, half. So that's a lot closer already. Um, uh, So much, much uh, higher than in uh, than in academia. But the percentage of black uh, people in tech or Latino people in tech is they're both at about five or six percent. And they're both essentially the same levels as in academia. So uh, where the the big difference is, is um, there are are many uh, South Asian and East Asian people in tech. Um, So that's why the the non-white segment is, you know, uh, so high. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, and then in terms of uh, for, for women, uh, in at Facebook at least, again, not all the companies report this. Um, twenty three percent of the women at Facebook – twenty three percent of the uh, the employees at Facebook are women. So quite a bit lower than uh, in academia. But nonetheless, we're you know academia is not looking great uh, according to according to these metrics. So it does suggest there is some bias that's creeping in, and there's all different kinds of reasons for these things. It's not you know uh, necessarily. We should always point to discrimination, although I think that's clearly part of of of,
0: of what's going on here as well. Yeah. So I wonder um, how you think about uh, so this the, your question of like the female underrepresentation, um, which I you know I've heard similar stats, and it it really seems like there's this leaky pipeline um, that I think m- much of it has to do with the amount of moving that's required. So I moved uh, for grad school. I moved again um, for my postdoc. I moved again for my first tenure track job. I moved again to come here. And I think that the average woman is less likely to have a partner who's willing to do that than the average man is. So is that discrimination or bias on the part of academia or is it the structure of how academia is set up, combined with the type of people that high achieving men versus high achieving women tend to partner up with?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I mean, I wonder if it, at the end of the day, it's not an important question though, in the sense that um, if you want to call it individual level discrimination or like systemic, you know, you know, pressures that prevent women from. You know, staying in academia. I think either way, still, it's still these pressures that women experience for all different kinds of reasons uh, that men don't. Um, But I think you're right. I mean, that's another major negative of academia is the amount of moving you need. Like the inability to decide where you live. uh, That's a huge negative. Um, You have to go where the jobs are. That can mean leaving your country, leaving your city, leaving your state, um, and and. That's interesting. What you said, though, you said that it's not that women are necessarily less willing to do that, but that they have partners who would be less willing to support their uh, their wives or partners who, um, uh, who to do this. So, you know, in other words, their their male partners, for the most part, not always, but um, are. In some ways sexist, right they not on an any an individual level, but on average like no I, my career is more important, and I 'm not going to move or I'm going to move so, so much, whereas women are maybe more likely to uh, to be agreeable in this regard that's an interesting uh an interesting idea
0: yeah i I mean it, it doesn't and now I'm like way out beyond any data I have it do, It doesn't even necessarily need to be explicit, well, sexism of any kind on, on the part of the men. So if, for example, high-achieving women um, are likely To prefer high-achieving men, whereas high-achieving men are a little less so, right? So then it might make sense to say, like, if you're that high-achieving man married to a high-achieving woman, yeah, but my career is equally important to yours, right? Whereas if you're the high-achieving man married to a less high-achieving woman, it makes sense for you as a couple if you're making the best joint decision to say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to take this opportunity, she's going to put her career on hold, right? So all you need there is for high-achieving men versus high-achieving women to assort differently to partners to produce these sorts of um, disparities.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so just a slight preference in a, – a, a difference in preference for, for status Uh could mathematically lead to these kinds of outcomes without there being any discrimination whatsoever. And we know that this preference is likely to be there and maybe even strongly there. There might even be a, an aversion um, among men and women to uh, to have a status difference that's in the wrong direction.
0: Right. and and certainly if you ask men and women, you know, it, would it bother you if your partner earned a lot more than you did? Men are more likely to say yes than women are. Uh, so I guess like with any of these questions, like the possibility that this is going on doesn't mean that it's actually going on. But I think this gets to this, you know, more fundamental point of like, you see this outcome disparity. What's the cause? Right. And, and it, I think your point is well taken that if you want equal representation, for practical or moral reasons, maybe you're like, well, the cause is less important. But if you're like, how do we tackle the problem, then it really matters what the cause is. If it's that hiring committees explicitly discriminate against women, that suggests a different solution than if it's that women on average are less willing to move multiple times to pursue their
1: careers. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a, I think that's a really good point. I mean, the an observation of a difference is not necessarily... Uh, we shouldn't conclude from that that there is a discrimination going on. There could be other possible reasons for that, uh, including this. this is, that, that's a really, you know, just a mathematical effect of, of slight differences in who you're attracted to. Um, but you well, listen, I want to, uh, I want to have uh, another beer here. So should we take a short
0: break and then uh, pick it up? Let's take a quick break and pick it up after uh, we refresh. I've been seeing you every day On my black and you're waiting You're looking pretty fine to me So why are you waiting When I'm swimming in my dancing shoes I Asphalt's tight and my Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Pod. Mickey and I both check uh, the DMs and the at mentions for that account. If you'd rather email us, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That again will go to both of us. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com where you can listen to any of our episodes. You can drop us a note there as well. Finally, um, if you are enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on the podcast hosting platform of your choice, such as Apple Podcasts. It helps other people... Discover the show, uh, Mickey. Have I left anything out? No, I think uh, I think you're all good. I
1: I, I've, I I have noticed that we have not received a written review in in quite some time. So uh, please write one uh, if you enjoy the show because we we enjoy reading it. It helps other people find us. So we'd like that. I also wouldn't mind plugging a couple of newish podcasts that uh, that I enjoy. So one is a podcast called Decoding the Gurus. Um, holy shit, the amount of work these two guys put into their podcast. I mean, if we put a tenth of the amount of work as they do, I mean, uh, it would be an, a massive amount of work. So they like, they're really interested in, in, uh, the intellectual dark web and very critical of them and, and, and of the gurus that come out of there. And they kind of analyze, um, one guru at a time and really kind of decompose and give, you know, clips of, of, of some of their talks or, uh, YouTube lectures, what have you. And I really enjoy it. So I, I want to plug that. Um, the other one, which we've mentioned before, uh, is more uh, uh, more of a comment than a question, hosted by Paul Conner and Smriti Meta. And I really just like that podcast. It's become a, a regular for me. I, I enjoy listening to it. Yes. So we'll get back to, you know, uh, academia, for and against. So for, so far, we've been pretty against, I would say. Yes, you've been dead set against. <laughs> I mean it's just so easy to find uh you know some points against. So I'll just wrap it up and then maybe we'll we'll, we'll end with a, with a, just a few points of, of 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 optimism and positivity. But just a, you know a couple of other points that I that I saw people bring up uh, on various forums that I that, that I went on. Um so I uh one that I hear a lot is academics work extremely long hours. So they work really really hard, um maybe more hours than other jobs. And in my estimation uh, that is, that's not untrue. I think academics do work hard, but in my estimation, they work hard because they want to work hard. Um, No one is actually forcing people to work, you know, more than 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, whatever it might be. Um, It's more that I think academics really love what they do and they're passionate about these projects and they end up doing, working really long hours on the things
0: that they really enjoy. Uh, is that your sense as well or? Well, you know, I'll be honest. I've had a beer and a half. Like, I don't think I work that hard. (laughs) Except the tenured professor. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do. Like, it's, it's, it's bursty, right? So sometimes I'll get interested in something and I'll just want to do that more than I want to eat or sleep or take a shower or go outside. But then there's days where I basically do almost nothing. Like, I might answer a few emails and have two meetings, right? So if I'm like, how much actual work is that? It's like three hours of actual work. And, you know, like knowing people in other professions who are like, you know, lawyers or my sister is like a PhD chemist and works for an IP law firm. Like, she consistently works longer hours than I do, I think. And when she's working, she's working. And when I'm working half the time, I'm like dicking around.
1: Yeah, that, that that is fair. I I I don't think I've worked that hard for about a decade now. So <laughs>
0: uh, good. I'm I'm glad you're willing to admit that. Yeah,
1: uh, but I do know lots of academics who do work many many hours. But again, I don't see anyone you know putting a gun to their head. I think they do it because they really, really want to. This is what they're really passionate about. Although that being said. The the long hours that academics put in is, I think, of a different quality than the long hours that, let's say, a lawyer or your, for example, your, your chemist sister puts in, where I suspect they're actually working. Um, where I think academics, th- many of the long hours are, you know, filled with uh, being on Twitter or Facebook uh, or wasting time in other ways um, that might be worky, but not necessarily directly related to work.
0: Yeah. And I guess we should be specific in saying, like, we're talking about having a tenured or tenure-track job at a research-focused institution, right? So if you're an adjunct and you're teaching, you know, eight classes, yeah, you're working crazy hours. Um, If you're at a teaching-focused institution and you're doing, like, a 4-4 course load, uh, I, I believe that you're working very hard, right? But I teach three classes a year, and they're like their work I'm busy during the teaching semester and sometimes I like have to work later than I would like or whatever but but that's it it's over in 3 months it's you know not I'm not killing myself here if I'm being, being honest right yeah you, you stack your teaching all
1: in one semester so you get it all over with at once yep uh, so so the other the other one you you hear a lot and I think here is just this is massive variability um academics work for very little pay so you know you 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 spend your how many years to get the degree and then you're forced to move to some place that you might not like and then the pay is actually pretty meager um, and well what's your response to that
0: uh, I think there's a lot of variability um, I think that at some state schools you don't make a ton, although then also like, what's the local cost of living there? Like if you're living in a not very expensive town, that salary can maybe go a bit farther. Um, I, I I find it hard to generalize. And again, here we're talking about tenured or tenure track, right? Not adjuncts who are making probably sub minimum wage. Once you add up all the hours that they're spending on prep and student contact and stuff. Uh, it, it, it's just so highly variable, right? Like certainly in Canada, I think faculty get paid pretty well. Yeah, I think I, I actually looked up
1: uh, this, conflicting reports, but uh, at least according to one report, Canada was I, I, the highest. Academics were the highest paid in Canada on average. I, I think if you're a superstar academic, the U.S. is probably the place you get the paid the most. Um, but on average, uh, at least in this one report, Canada, you know, uh, uh, looked pretty, pretty good. And I again, I think there's massive variability. I think it depends on the dis- the, the discipline. I think there are market forces that are at play. So if you're in the humanities where there aren't as many options for you outside of academia, there's not, you know, the the academia is not competing with many other forces, then I think it's, it's, you know, much slimmer pickings and the salaries are lower. Um, And and then conversely, if you go into economics or business schools, uh, those dudes get paid pretty well. Um, So uh, definitely a a lot of variability. So I think there's like this trope that academics are, you know, impoverished. uh, And I, I I think that's only true for some. And, and I think you you keep on mentioning adjuncts and I want to kind of bring that back as well. Um, That's, I think, a true evil that that's committed by universities. This kind of uh, almost like a a slave class, a a class of people who are, you know, the university is peddling hope. You know, these are adjuncts who are, you know. Uh, uh, trained PhDs, many have you know excellent records, but for whatever reason, uh, sometimes out of their control, they can't uh, they they can't leave their city, uh, and they're stuck doing these adjunct positions. And and really, the pay is really really low. Um, the there's no job certainty. They're living literally from semester to semester, and it's a terrible terrible way to make a living because you just don't know what's going to happen from one semester to the next. So it's really really tough. Uh, So that's a real, real negative. And I think the university should, morally, I I, I think, um, needs to really do something about that.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree. And this is something that really makes me angry. I I think this is, um, it's especially bad in the US, uh, where there seem to be very few, if any, limits to what schools can do to adjuncts. Um, and, and these are, of course, the same institutions that are like preaching about their commitment to justice in various ways. And then it's like the very existence of it depends on massively exploiting this class of people. That's really just disgusting. Um, in here, you know, we do, we have. Contract teachers, right? But uh, the university is limited in how many of those it can employ. And then we also have a teaching intensive class of faculty, but they get the same benefits, uh, tenure protections, and so on that research stream faculty get. So I think that um, if... US schools are serious about their commitment to treating people fairly, that's what they would do. Like, not everybody needs to be research focused, but the people who are doing the bulk of the teaching need to have job security, they need to have benefits in healthcare, they need to have retirement, and they need to have predictability, right? Like, right now, if you're an adjunct, like from semester to semester, you don't have certainty about whether you're going to have a job. It's just insane to me. Absolutely. I think it's truly
1: the criminal um, that this is going on. I saw this one, this is, you know, you mentioned how in the US, there's practically no limits. I'm not sure if you saw this you well. But apparently, uh, I think it was a year or two ago, um, there was an advertisement for an adjunct position I believe at Southern Illinois University that was without pay it was a volunteer position the idea being that if you work as an adjunct and you're expected to do teaching I mean you're not you're not you're not just like floating around doing what you know nothing you're teaching classes you're mentoring graduate students you're a faculty member Uh, without pay it's kind of that is like it's like an internship if you do this then maybe if you're lucky you'll get a a
0: paid adjunct position i guess oh my god this it's it's like the godfather right my offer is this (laughs) nothing
1: (laughs) i mean it's truly truly shameful um so again so that's really i mean i we're we're really i think that's the the lowest you can get is something like that um so okay, oh, this is another one, and another one that I hear that I that I hear a lot. And then let's switch gears and we'll like in the last 10 minutes we'll talk about the positive. Um and this one uh, is that uh academia is especially bad for mental health. So that it is, you know, the, the people in academia are suffering worse mental health outcomes than you know, people of a similar age, similar status, who are in other uh, professions, other careers. That's the claim. I, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't dig too too deeply to see the actual stats. I suspect there are lots of reasons why. You know, if I don't doubt that that there there are mental health outcomes of being in academia, negative ones. Uh, I don't know how they can put out their industries. Um, but, but what's your take on on that? I'm sure you've heard that little uh, that that claim.
0: Yeah, I I don't know what the evidence for it is, and I don't know what the comparison group would be, and I don't know how you would rule out selection effects. So I guess you could say, well, there's some things about being an academic that are like going to be bad for your mental health, which might be a lot of unstructured time, um, a lot of social comparison, uh, these... specific points at which you're under a lot of pressure and uncertainty, like, are you going to get a job? Are you going to get tenure? But then there's also, you know, the fact that you get to choose what you want to work on for the most part. So you have a lot of autonomy, you get to set your work schedule, which obviously can be a blessing and a curse. But like, I think for the most part that people consider that to be a positive thing. And uh, you can take time off in a way that um, it, people who have regular jobs typically aren't able to, right? So if you plan your shit well enough, you can just disappear for a month and do nothing. And I think most people who have a you know demanding career that's just not possible for them. Yeah, I mean, I I, I went to Bali
1: for <laughs> for my sabbatical. <laughs> I did work, but uh yes, uh,
0: exactly what I'm talking about man yeah, yeah
1: um so okay, so let's let's go over to to the positive side, and we're gonna uh not spend too much time on it because perhaps they're self evident and I think you've already just named uh named a few of them uh so now, this first one that I have, I suspect a lot of people will say this is fucking bullshit, uh, and you know fuck you with your you know kind of uh like values here. But I don't know. I, 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 I personally, I derive satisfaction from knowing that my job is, you know, advancing what I believe to be a noble mission, right? Which is I'm trying to uh, accumulate knowledge. I'm trying to advance knowledge. Um, perhaps even if I was really aspirational uh, and in psychology, I think it's, not impossible, um, maybe even improve people's lives. Um, and this strikes me as something that is you know deeply meaningful and something that I can rally around, something that I'm like I feel proud of. And I'm not sure that you get that same sense of, again, this noble purpose uh, in you know working, let's say for Facebook or working for Instagram. Um, now, that being said, I, you know, I've been actually uh, looking into um, uh, work psychology in the past few months, and it turns out that actually people can derive meaning in all different kinds of ways, and, and, and they, they craft their jobs so that it is personally meaningful for them. So I have no doubt that many people have jobs that they find personally meaningful, not just in academia. But again, just, it's like maybe working for an NGO to some extent. You're, you're, you're pursuing what I consider to be a noble pursuit, um, an ideal um, is that is that
0: complete bullshit to you? Do 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 you find that does that ring true? Um, well, I I think I like that my job is not generally harmful. That's as good as it gets. That is as far as I'm willing to go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you don't you don't see any nobility? Any uh, you, would you consider it to be like working uh at a nonprofit at an NGO?
0: Doing good, maximum, you know, help, helping the world a little bit? I don't know how my research really helps the world in any direct way. Um, I guess I could come up with a story how the downstream consequences might be positive. Um, but that's not, to be honest, really what's motivating me. And I think if I wanted to be making more of a difference... Then I would be doing something with more direct application. Like you could help NGOs do program evaluation, for example, with our skill set. And I think they're like, much more clearly, you're like, here's the people who are being helped. I can't really point to the people who are being helped by my work. And honestly, for me, it's not the point. It's that I find it personally interesting. Right. Okay. So, well, that I mean, that, that's actually point my
1: point number two, which is we really can uh work on what we want. I know that's that, you know, for graduate students who are listening, this might seem like an impossibility because you're not you're know, maybe mostly working on your your advisor's work and, and and you like it, but you don't love it. But you eventually will be able to work on what you like. And you can change course. You can totally change direction. Um so in my career, I, 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 I started out being really, really passionate about intergroup relations, prejudice and discrimination. And it's what I, you know, dreamed about and thought about all the time. And then at some point, I, I grew tired of that and, and wanted to do something else. And I did. And now I'm growing tired of what I'm doing now, and I'm going to do something else. And, and I can forever do that. And that's just, uh, I love that. I love that, you know, I, I, you know, my passion is what I end up working on.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. That's huge, and I, I think it's worth a lot. Like, you know, when we we're talking about earlier, you know, how does the the pay compare to different things? I, I think that's something that, like, you are buying by being paid less than maybe you could be doing something else is the freedom to just like follow your interests. And to me, that's that's huge, right? To be like, oh, I am now interested in this thing. I am going to start poking around there. Like I'm going to, maybe I'll start a project there. Like it, it, it's really so wide open. I, and I have trouble thinking of another job that you could have that gives you so much freedom to, to follow what you're interested in. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, I, I really changed, like, not just my, what I studied, but how I studied, like what, you know, I was never trained as a neuroscientist or a psychophysiologist. I taught myself all this stuff and for about 10 years was working heavily on that. And now I've kind of grown bored of that and we'll be doing something else. And, and, and it's, yeah, it's hard to imagine, um, a job that gives you as much flexibility. So I love that. I really, really love that. Um, related to that is uh, you are your own boss. I mean, technically, we have a chair and we, we have deans who sit above us, but not really. I mean, we are, we have to do, you know, we, there, there, there are certain basics that we have to do. We've got to teach our classes and, and we have certain standards to, to uphold in our classes. And, um, and I suppose there are some, you know, there, there are there is research required of us, at least pre tenure, um, but that's it. There's really so much freedom. I mean, this podcast, for example. I mean, you know, I've written up this podcast on my annual report of what I do. This is, you know, we do this because it's fun and interesting, but it's you know academic ish, and we can do this, and we get recognition for it, and that's fun. Oh, dude i
0: I had not thought to put this on my annual progress reports, but you better believe that the next one is gonna have this <laughs> this podcast on it. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, I think it it it, it gives a, it gives zero, you know, in terms of the progress report. They're like it might even be a minus potentially, um, but the point is we can do these things. We have the freedom to do these things, and um, uh, but you know, I guess the the, the there, there's a double edged sword to this in the sense that. You know uh sometimes, because you are following your passion, you're following what you like, one can work a lot more than one wants uh in, in like in a in some if you kind of ideally put out what you know you know the amount of hours you work i think we, we do end up working a bit more despite what i said earlier about not working hard for 10 years um right i mean cuz you're working on stuff you love so you you end up doing it maybe more than you'd like sometimes
0: there's a potential for it to get unbalanced for sure and and despite all my boasting about being lazy you know it it can happen that i get like obsessed with something and then it's sort of an unhealthy amount of like focus on that thing so I think, again, this is like the the problems that come with freedom, right, where you are in charge of making sure that you're not working in an unhealthy amount because, like, nobody's going to tell you to stop. You don't have a manager who's like, look, you're getting burned out. You know, take a personal day. It's all you. Right. Right. Exactly.
1: Um. So... Uh so now this is this this one is kind of I think, think idiosyncratic. Uh, I think not everyone would would want to be an academic. Not everyone you know is 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 inclined uh, this way. But for me, you know, if I really sit down and think uh, about what I really really like, I love reading. I love learning. I love learning new things. I really just enjoy it um, and to be challenged by new things and. This is what we do for a living. We are learning new things, challenged by new things, be methods, content. Um, we get paid to read and think, um, and that is fucking amazing. Um, that that I, I you know we get paid to do that. Like it's it it, 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 it blows my mind that, that this is this is my job. Um, now again, the the flip side to that is you're surrounded by. Brilliant people who also like to read and think, and it's very easy, I think, to feel uh, like an imposter. It's it's very easy to feel like you're inadequate, because no matter how much you've mastered, there's still there's there's an infinite ma- amount that you could be mastering. Um, and i forget if I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but uh, I, I, I recently. I realized that I have a, a new form of imposter syndrome or a different form, at least for me. And that is where I feel uh, dumber than less skilled than my students who, you know, are on on the cutting edge of all the techniques um, and learning all this stuff. And I just can't keep up with them because there's just so much to learn. Um, But I'm s- trying to learn to let go and to like, Find that to be a thrilling thing, like amazing. I can't believe you've done this thing that you've taught. You, you've learned machine learning and a de- you know, a classifying technique. I'm like, those are just words for me. I don't know exactly what's underneath those words, but wow, I'm I, you know, it's it's fantastic. So, but again, that's I, I do see that generally is a positive, but there is there could be a negative there if you're if you're self conscious.
0: Yeah, so again this, you know, uh, great for some people, maybe bad for the mental health of others. And I absolutely feel you on having this feeling of like, wow, my student knows way more than I do about this, and it's a little bit like insecure, you know, because I I'm used to being the one who knows more about everything, but I've decided I'm just going to like let it go. It's cool. She's the expert, and that's totally fine. <laughs> but it you know, it's it,
1: it it's a, it's hard to do. I think for, at least for me, I feel like I ought to be, you know, I don't need to be the expert, but I need to at least speak the same language. And at some point I'm like, I just, I, I just can't do it. I just, I mean, I mean, I could, if I really devoted myself to it, but I just don't have the time because I've got so many other things to do. Um, but anyways, it is kind of, it can be a thrilling experience as well. And this relates maybe to one of my, uh, not my final point, but almost my final point, which is, you know, the fact that we work, I think we work most closely with graduate students. And there is something really energizing uh, about working with uh, young people who are enthusiastic about what they do and idealistic and who are just, you know, have the time and the eagerness and the willingness to learn the new things. And... um you know, you're always working with young people. Like they, they you know, a sad, a sad part of that is they eventually leave the lab and they, they go on to do other things, which is wonderful. You, you say goodbye to them, um, at least you know they're on your labs. But there's just something nice about working with young people who are enthusiastic about what they do. So I really, I really enjoy that part of the job as well.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think it keeps us youthful or else in a state of arrested emotional development, <laughs> whichever you prefer. Yeah.
1: Okay. Final last thing. And then I think we're, we're pushing, we're pushing on time here. And I, and I wonder if this is, um, maybe it says more about me and my background than, uh, something about academia more generally. Uh, so, you know, I'm a first generation college student and, you know, didn't grow up with lots of books in the house. My parents are not, you know, well-read. Um, and I always kind of revered professors, uh, my, my teachers in general. Uh, it was kind of thrilling to even, you know, start to, to, to talk with them. Um, and then when I kind of shifted in that role, I was kind of on the receiving end of that, of to some extent, uh, you know, this respect that you get. This, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is the job comes with a certain level of prestige. Uh, people respect your opinion. All of a sudden, people call me up or email me asking me what I think about X, Y, or Z. And I'm like, "Why? I'm an expert on like one or maybe two things. Why are you asking about this other thing that I know nothing about? But yet they still want to hear from me. Um, And again, that's maybe not correct. They should be asking, you know, true experts. But um. I'm not going to lie. It's a nice thing. It's nice that I, you know, there is this kind of general level of respect that um, I think we get. Uh, And again, maybe, uh, maybe in the U S is different or maybe it's just my own upbringing, this kind of uh, reverence that I, that I did have for professors. Um, But it's in my, in my experience, it's a position of, of, of honor and prestige, uh, which is nice to be in. Um, Is that your
0: sense as well, or is it a a bit different for you? Uh. Nobody ever calls me wanting my opinion, Mickey. (laughs) (laughs) That is not true. No, that's sometimes you refer people to me, and they call me for my opinion. (laughs) No, you're right. So, like, there's there's the very kind of like local status of around grad students or undergrads. You're like the higher status person. and then there is I guess a little bit of the like social status of like most regular people don't get called up by members of the media who are like, "Hey, I'd really like you to speculate on this thing you don't know anything about um that's a that's a mixed blessing to me i'm I'm definitely uncomfortable with the uh, Hey, will you speculate about this, like, thing that I need to write a story about? And I generally tell those people, sorry, I don't know anything about this topic. Um, I've also, like, really not succeeded at getting the undergrads to not call me, you know, Dr. Inbar or whatever, which is just super, still super weird to me. Um, and so I, I, I guess some of that I don't, enjoy or it makes me a little uncomfortable. But you know, if you're going to be like, do you want to be a high status or low status? Yeah, right. I would rather be high status. <laughs> right. Just the same like I you know you don't need to say how
1: positive it is to be rich. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so then, you know, did I miss anything? Like what about, you know, what about your experience of academia
0: in terms of, you know, you can be positive or negative, I suppose. Uh, well, yeah, I I I don't think that you left anything out that I'm like burning to talk about, I think we could easily do a whole nother episode about stuff that we haven't uh discussed yet um and uh in particular, you know i I would love to talk more and maybe have somebody on to talk more about. You know, what does it look like when you're making this decision about when to stay in versus go? And I think that's a really important thing to um, to have like a rule about or something. So you don't get stuck in like constantly taking another short-term position. You're just like, screw it. I'm going to go do something else. Um, so I think like people who have gone to industry are really useful there. I'm very curious about people who've left tenure-track jobs to take industry jobs. Yeah, me too. Which, Yeah. Like that, that I... I um, would love to chat with one of those folks about what that decision is like. So I, I think there's a ton more here to explore, but I, I think we've done a good job given our inherent limitation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, cheers, you all. And it's great uh, being in the same room with you again.
1: And, and, and by the way, we didn't talk about our second beer. I just realized. But we actually have
0: had a second beer each. We, we drank the second beer, listeners. You can be assured. <laughs> so uh, yeah, thanks for listening and uh, see you next time. Cheers.